Okay, good morning. Our Parsha class this morning is sponsored by Danny Hiller, Tova, Melial, and Jonas Shacher in commemoration of the first year side of their beloved wife, mother, and Bubby, Shandy Shandel Bas Yaakov. You know, Danny is up north observing the yurt site with his family, and uh, we too miss our beloved member, uh, Shane D. Hiller, a very special woman of faith and courage, very kind and compassionate. Her neshama should have an aliyah through our divrei Torah, and her family should find nechama in their observance of her first yurt site. Okay, this week we conclude Sefer Shmos. We finish up the second book of the Torah with the double portion of Vayakel and Pekude together. And with this we come full circle. Having just read Shuma Tetzaveh, we read about the construction of the Mishkan, the dimensions of all of the kalim, the utensils therein. Tetzaveh, we read about the Big Day Kahuna, and Vayakel Pekude, seemingly we repeat everything we just read. If you have your Mikros Kedolos, or you look in the standard Chumash, you'll see very little commentary. Because so much of it is redundant, is repetitive of what we read already. So why are we repeating it? Why does it appear again? We'll address that in a moment. But really, Sefer Shemos comes to a close, the peak, the end. Look at the last Pasuk of Sefer Shemos. Or the last few Pesukim, the Maftir, page 540. The cloud covered the Ol Moed and the Kvod Hashem, Hashem's presence, the divine countenance, filled the Mishkan. And this is the conclusion. This is the peak. This is what all of Sefer Shmos was leading towards. The entire reason we were extracted and liberated from Egypt was not to be some free secular political entity, but was to emerge to be the people of Hashem to build a place where Hashem's presence could dwell. So it is the realization of the essence of all of Sefer Shmos. From the very beginning of Shmos, which describes our descent into Egypt, our suffering there, the liberation from Egypt, the transition through the desert, Har Sinai, the instructions for the Mishkan, the detour of the building of the Egel, <clears throat> the return to the building of the Mishkan, and finally, covers the Ol Moed with his divine countenance. This is what the Ramban describes, that Sefer Shmos is the transition from Golos to Geula, from exile to redemption. And we've shared before the question that the Ramban himself is bothered by. What do you mean redemption? The fact that Sefer Shmos begins with exile, that's clear, that's plain and simple. There's no greater exile than the suffering in the servitude of Egypt. But where is the redemption? How do we normally define redemption? What's Geula for us? We think of Geula geographically, that going back to Israel, redeeming the land, conquering, living in the land, that's redemption. And yet, where are they at the end of Sefer Shmos? Still in the desert. They've not yet ascended to Eretz Yisrael, to Eretz Canaan. Still in the desert. So where is the Geula? And the Ramban explains that Golos and Geula are not geographic descriptions. They are existential descriptions. They are spiritual descriptions. Golos, exile, is when you feel distant from the Almighty. In fact, in our own vernacular, a person is in a dark place 
they're in a, in a distant place when they're disconnected. They don't feel that there's meaning and purpose and order to their lives. They feel victims of randomness and chance and happenstance. When a person feels helpless and hopeless, they are in exile. And what is redemption? When you're filled with optimism and hope. When you believe that whatever is happening is for a reason. You're connected to the Almighty, to the Master of the Universe. That is redemption. Redemption is not necessarily that you've healed from your illness, that you have your children, that you found your spouse, that you won the lottery. Redemption is even before that. When you're able to understand whatever it is that you're going through, through the lens, the prism of feeling the presence of the Ribbon Shalom. And that comes out from the Ramban's introduction to the Sefer and the way the Sefer concludes. I want to read to you, I shared last week, Rav Shechter on the Parsha, a new Sefer that came out this week. Shiva University celebrated their Chag HaSmicha. Every three years now, I'm sure some people maybe have grandsons or nephews or neighbors' sons who were part of the Chag HaSmicha. Mazel Tov, if you did. I remember my Chag HaSmicha. It's a very auspicious, very celebratory occasion. Why you celebrated 120, I forget exactly what the number, 130, in three years, it's really uh, magnificent. And it coincides with the 50th anniversary of Rav Shechter as a Rosh Hashiva at YU. Tremendous, uh, five decades of teaching Torah, the dedicated to Sefer Torah. Rav Shechter is my Rebbe, I was in a shir for many years, and, uh, and I'm grateful they put out his... Um, his teachings on Chumash. So in this parasha, on Pekudei, the very end of Sefer Shemos, he writes the following. He quotes this Ramban. The Ramban explains the primary tragedy of Golis is not that we are dwelling outside of Eretz Yisrael per se. The tragedy is we're no longer experienced Hashra Sashchina, the divine presence. Once the Mishkan was built, we read in the concluding passage that the Shechina returned, Ve'echasa ananas o'al mo'ed, u'kvod Hashem malayas ha'mishkan. Thus, the definition of Geula, writes Rav Shechter, is the building of the Beis HaMikdash with Hashra Sashchina. And Bnei Yisrael were therefore able to experience Geula even without entry into Eretz Yisrael. And the converse is also true. Although we have today returned to Eretz Yisrael and the Yishuv grows larger and larger, absent the Beis HaMikdash, we've not yet experienced Geula. After the establishment of the State of Israel, the Chazonish was quoted as saying, This is the Sofa Golos, but it is not yet the Geula. To the end of exile, it's not yet redemption. Chazanish was presumably using the Ramban's terminology. It is the conclusion of the Golos because we're now free to reside in Eretz Yisrael. But it is not yet the Geula as we lack Hashra Sashchina. And then Rav to suggest the following. The Gemara in Rosh Hashanah Yidal famously tells us, Benisan Nigalu Ubenisan Asidin Ligael. In the month of Nisan we were redeemed and in Nisan we are destined to once again be redeemed. It would seem that the first statement is not as much based on the fact that Yitzhak Mitzrayim occurred in Nisan as it is based on the dedication of the Mishkan in Nisan one year later. Now, as we normally understand that Gemara to mean we were redeemed from Egypt in Nisan, something special about that month. It's predisposed for redemption, for good tidings, positive energy. It's an auspicious month. Since we were taken out of Egypt, good things will happen again in Nisan. Says Rav Shechter, no. Coming out of Egypt is not Geula. Minisan Nigalu, we experience redemption. But coming out of Egypt was not redemption. It was liberation, liberation, emancipation. Freedom is not the same as redemption. What was the redemption that came in Nisan based on this Ramban? That's when they built the Mishkan. 
when Hashem's presence could be felt intensely in our midst, when we felt connected, when we had knowledge of Hashem's existence without doubt and uncertainty. The presence of the Mishkan is redemption, and that's the illusion of Nisan. Similarly, the basis for the second statement of Chazal is in the Pesukim in Yechezkel, which described the special korbonos that will be brought for the Chinuch of the third base Hamikdash for more than six months. When we will merit the third temple, it's Machlokas, Tosos, and Rambam, will it drop from heaven, or will we build it? But when we merit the third temple, we're going to inaugurate it with sacrifices for more than six months. From when? When will it begin? The inauguration of the third temple from Rosh Chodesh? Nisan. At which time the construction of the Beis HaMikdash will complete until the middle of the following Tishrei. The future Geula in Nisan corresponds to the completion of the building of the third Beis HaMikdash. So Shechter beautifully applies the Ramban's thesis of what Galus and Geula are to the phrase we always use, Benisan Nigalu, we were redeemed in Nisan, not the Egypt, that was liberation, emancipation. But the redemption and previously in Nisan was the building of the Mishkan, and the Benisan Asidin Ligoel, we will be redeemed in Nisan, is not talking about the end of Iran and Hezbollah and Hamas, it's talking about all that too. But what it means specifically, Asidin Ligoel, is that we'll merit the third base of Mikdash and Hashem will dwell once again. And then Rav Shechter in this uh, same essay, we don't have time, I'm not going to read the whole thing, talks about Gemara and Sanhedrin, when we enter Eretz Yisrael, we have to do three things, we establish a Jewish government, we eradicate a Malik, and we build the Beis HaMikdash. Entry into Eretz Yisrael means that the majority of the world population lives there. The Achronim explained, according to his opinion, the building of the second Beis HaMikdash must have been Hora Shah. It was a temporary, because the majority of Jews still lived in Bovel. Rav Tzvi Hirsch Kalasher, a student of Rabbi Kiva Eger, who wrote Drishas Tzion, he advocated the building of a Mizbeach in the Makam HaMikdash. He published an open letter to Baron Rothschild, urging him to support the cause, mentioning that if he would be instrumental in bringing the enterprise to fruition, the Baron might come to be the Melech HaMashiach. Rav Kalasher may have intended a suggestion to be a fulfillment of the mitzvah to build the Beis HaMikdash, but he was not suggesting there was an obligation. There was no obligation, because we hadn't yet done the first two, namely, establishing a Jewish government and eradicating a Malik. 1967, writes Rav Shechter, <clears throat> after the Six-Day War, when we finally had Harabayis Biadenu, some felt we had an obligation to build the Beis HaMikdash. Rav said at the time that there was no such obligation because the ongoing security issues, which continue to be surrounded by our enemies to this day, only after the government wages war against a Malik and the land is secure, would such an obligation begin. The third step, the building of the Beis HaMikdash, only becomes obligatory once that it's absolutely peaceful in Eretz Yisrael. Rav Yaakov Etlinger responded to Rav Kalasher that the building of the altar and a Beis HaMikdash would be an impossibility for another reason. It says, L'Shechno Tidrashu, and the Sifri says, Doresh Alpi Navi, that you have to consult with a prophet before building exactly where the altar goes in the Beis HaMikdash. We lack prophecy today, and therefore that's why Rav Yaakov Etlinger ob- objected and said it's not yet a possibility. Again, it's a long essay here, very interesting. Rav Shechter gets into the concept of Eschalta de Geula. If redemption is God returning His divine countenance, redemption is not geographic. As great as Nefesh Benefesh is, as wonderful as Aliyah, as important as it is for all of us to consider, not if, but when we are moving to Israel, and we should every single day struggle with when we are moving to Israel, we belong in Israel, the destiny of the Jewish people is in Israel, but redemption is not geographic. It is spiritual. So, but maybe eschalta de geula. 
the beginning, the early underpinnings, the hint of redemption. Writes Rav Shechter, many Hungarian Rabbanim were upset with Rav Kook, insisting he invented the concept of Aschalta de Geula, the beginning of redemption. They argued there are only two stages, Golas and Geula, not the intermediate stage that he spoke of. However, in fact, says Rav Shechter, this is a Talmudic term. The Achronim did attach halachic significance to it. The Gemara Megillah says, Nami de Geula. War is the beginning of redemption. Rashi explains it refers to wars between Jews and non-Jews, presumably relating to control over Eretz Yisrael. We readily understand why this would be called Eschalta de Geula, since after a victorious conclusion to this war, a Jewish government would be able to be established, forming the first stage in the three stages. Echsam Sofer in his diary, quoted by the Minchas Elazar, assumed that the other wars are also included in Eschalta de Geula. They therefore ruled that since it's prohibited to slow down the process of Geula, one should not pray that wars conclude. The Nesivos, this commentary to Megillus Esther, discussed the second halacha of Eschalta de Geula, Namely, that we are entitled to celebrate. Why are we allowed to enjoy Purim? Purim didn't land the Jews of Shushan in Israel. How could you celebrate a holiday as if it's a redemption when you're not yet in Israel? To which the Nesivos explains, because it's part of that intermediate stage of Aschalta de Geula. Anyway, I highly recommend wonderful Sefer of Shechter's teachings on the Chumash. So the very end of our Pasha of Pekudei brings Sefer Shmos to a close based on the Ramban's description of it, a transition, a development from exile to redemption, not geographically, but from the exile of an, a lack of awareness of God to redemption, an intense awareness of God, living life every day, knowing, feeling God's hand on our shoulder, feeling God's embrace, feeling the divine providence that guides our entire lives. Okay, so that is in terms of how Bayaka Pakude conclude the book of Shemos. Why are we revisiting all of this? We just saw it in Shuma Tetzava. Why are we seeing it all over again? So we've discussed this at length in the past, and I don't want to get back into it. You can listen online, but I'll just tell you in one minute, because without it, you can't understand these entire parshias, what we're doing here. According to, there's a big debate. Did the Mishkan come before or after the Chaita Egel? We've talked about this a lot. Is the Torah written chronologically? Is the Torah written thematically? Did God give us the mandate, the mission to build the Mishkan as a response to the sin of the golden calf? Or did He give it to us beforehand? And the answer is sort of both. In that the Torah Paskins, we have Truma Tetzava, take a break for Kisisa, we come back with Vayaka Pakudeh. Why repeat it? Why repeat it? Well, if you understand the Chayta Egel, the way the Kuzari Rabbi Yehuda Alevi and others do, that the sin of the golden calf was not an act of idolatry. The Jewish people had not practiced infidelity with God. In fact, so loving and so loyal were they to God that they craved a means to connect to Him. Until now, Moshe was the physical manifestation, the medium through which they felt spirituality. Every time they wanted contact with the divine, they looked at Moshe they heard from Moshe. They touched Moshe. Moshe disappears. He doesn't come back. They fear he's never coming back. They say, it's not that it's time to abandon God. We so love God that we so crave a connection. But what will we do? We are physical beings living in a physical world. You can't see, smell, touch, feel. How are we going to connect with God? So if Moshe's not here, we'll build an alternative to Moshe. 
We'll build a calf, a golden, why a calf, why out of gold? But we'll build something tangible, which will serve as a medium through which to connect to God. So says the Kuzari, the golden calf was not idolatry. It was not an abandonment of the worship of Hashem. It was misguided, misdirected worship of Hashem. So Hashem answers and He says, you know what? It's legitimate. It's a fair point you're making. I am invisible. And you don't hear from me explicitly. And you can't touch me or see me. I understand, you know what? That's a legitimate point. But you can't do it your way. You can't describe, you can't define, you can't decide how you're going to connect to me. I am the divine omnipotent being. You do it my way. So I'll tell you what. You feel you need a physical, tangible place, a manifestation to connect to me? No problem. Here is the Mishkan. Here are the Kalim. Here offer Korbanos. And so the Beis HaLevi says, if you look in Parsha, and the Orchayim has a similar comment in our Parsha, if you look at Vayaka Pakudei, you'll see that it's not simply a repeat of, of Truma Tetzave, but there's a significant difference. That with almost everything that's built, there's the word, Kasher Tziva Hashem Es Moshe. Over and over and over. For example, turn to page 532. You look at the end of each of those paragraphs, three paragraphs in a row. Vayaso is big day akodah shesher la'aron, kasher tziva Hashem es Moshe. Vayaso sama kisvoda ifod avnei zikaron, kasher tziva Hashem es Moshe. Vayacheshev afudaso asher lo mimenu hukam aseo zahav, kasher tziva Hashem es Moshe. Over and over and over again says the Beis Alevi, kasher tziva Hashem es Moshe. Doesn't say that with Truman Tetzaveh. Why would the Torah add Vayaka Pakudei Kasher Tziva Hashem Es Moshe? Says the Beis Alevi, you know why? To emphasize to us that the Jewish people got it. You cannot come up with your own innovative, creative new ways of worshiping the Almighty. Well, God gave us 613. I would like to suggest a different 613. I would like to modify. I would like to change the 613. No. You don't go to the doctor and then say... You know, thank you for diagnosing my illness, but I went on WebMD, I googled it, and you prescribed A, B, and C medicine, but I am going to, I think I'm going to take this other medicine. I think I'm going to, it seems to me I would be better off taking this other medicine. You can do that, you're not going to get better. The doctor went to medical school and residency and fellowship and training. The doctor has years of experience and intuition. The doctor has knowledge. And Lahavdil, the Ribbonu Shalom is not a human doctor. The Ribbonu Shalom, the Melech Malchayam Lachem created us, created the world, created everything in it. When he tells us this is the way to live life and to connect to me, he's giving us the blueprint. He's giving us the prescription that's guaranteed. When we say, you know what, God? I'm going to build an ego. I'm going to introduce my own new halacha, my own new ritual. I'm going to modify and adjust and change things in a way that meets my needs even when it's noble intention. That's what the Beis HaLevi is saying. According to the Kuzari, the Jewish people did something with the most noble intent. They weren't trying to abandon the Ribbonu Shlolem. They were trying to serve Him. And to do so most genuinely, they wanted and craved something physical. And yet, nevertheless, Hashem still says that even with the most noble intent, the road may be paved with good intentions, but it gets you to the wrong place. The ego was the wrong place. You want the right place? Here's a mishkan. 
here are kalim, here are korbanos. It's very instructive to us about how we live our lives and the fidelity we have to halacha. Certainly there are debates within halacha, and to a degree halacha responds to a changing world, but halacha doesn't change. This is the prescription of the Almighty. Kashat siva Hashem es Moshe. Even when we're curious, even when we are with noble intent, with sincere intent, without challenging the sincerity of people who are experimenting and changing halacha, you can have the most noble intent, but that's not what carries the day. You can have noble intent when you take your own medicine too. It doesn't mean you're going to get better. If you ignore the prescription the doctor gave, it doesn't matter how well-intentioned you were in trying it your way. Vayaka Pakude are the lesson of not trying it our way, of listening to Hashem's way. And that's why Kasher Tziva Elokim, Kasher Tziva Hashem Es Moshe, over and over and over. Again, as I said, we elaborated that, that more on another time. Okay. Let's do a quick uh, fly through the two parshios, and then I want to go back and talk about Shabbos a little bit. Vayaka begins, the Jewish people are all called together. Vayaka is called Adaspene Yisrael. Moshe is instructed to call everybody. It's the day after Yom Kippur. It's not just the elders, the leaders, the sages, it's everybody. And he instructs them about Shabbos. We'll come back to that in a moment. Then again, Go collect money. Go, the original shul appeal. We discussed this in Truma, that you get what you give. The research that shows you're happier the more you give rather than spend on yourself. The palindrome of the grah. Giving same forwards and backwards. And the Rabbi Salavitcha Chumashiran, he writes on Kechume Etchem Truma, the Gemara derives the principle, Tztaka Tatsa that charity is part of Tshuva from the Pasuk and Mishlei, that charity saves you from death. However, an earlier source to substantiate the assertion can be derived from the narrative here. Immediately after the episode of the Golden Calf, God commands the Jews to donate to the building of the Mishkan. God taught the Jews that giving staka was part of the process of tshuva for having worshipped the golden calf. They could not give staka to poor people. There were no beggars or paupers in the desert. It was a classless society. Not a society that lacked class, but that lacked classes. <laughs> Thus, they were told to donate to the Mishkan. So the Rav says that even before you get on the Pasuk and Mishli, the notion that staka is part of a tshuva process can be seen from our parsha. Right after the Chayta Egel, the repetition of the Mishkan doesn't begin with only the instruction of the dimensions of the Mishkan, but before that, reminds us of the appeal for the Mishkan. If you want to repair the damage done, you want to correct the mistake of the Egel, one of the ways is Tztaka. Now that's a very bizarre very bizarre idea. We employ this idea every year throughout the month of Elul and Tishrei, Rosh Hashanah, when Tokef culminates with the declaration, Utshuva, I won't sing the Dveka's version of it even though I love it, Utshuva, Utfila, Utsidaka, Ma'avirin Yisroa HaGzera. Tshuva, Tfila, Tzedaka? Tshuva, I understand. Ma'avirin Yisroa HaGzera. You can transform your destiny the edict you deserve based on transforming yourself. I get it. Tfila, I also understand. Davening is an exercise in 
self-awareness, self-transformation, self-realization. Famously, the the Ashik, that it's Lashon Hitpael, Lehispalel, we transform ourselves when we daven, we say to God, you know, that Gzeira, that was the Ephraim before davening. But after I've davened, and I've realigned my priorities and my relationship with you, I've transformed myself, I'm a new person worthy of a new edict. So you can be Mavir Roa Hagzeira through Tefillah. I'm not going to get into it now, but why is it called Roa Hagzeira? Why not Mavir Hagzeira? Transform the negative edict. Why the Roa, the negativity, the bitterness of the edict? Isn't the goal to change the destiny, the edict? Talk about that Yom Narayim time. But why Tztaka? Get to the third one in the formula. Tshuva I get, Tfilah I get, Tztaka? What do I come to the judge? I've made mistakes. I've been indicted. I come before the judge and I say, Judge, please, wave the sentence. Why? Tshuva, I've transformed myself. Judge, wave the sentence. Why? Tfilah. I've been meditating a lot, self-reflecting. I've changed a lot. I'm humble through the process of prayer. But then imagine, I come to the judge and I say, Hey judge, wave the sentence. Why? Who, who should I make the check out to? How many zeros does the check need? We would, that's not justice. There's no justice. That's bribery. It's shochad. Totally antithetical to Jewish values. The idea that you could pay your way out of consequences. That you could pay your way out of accountability. How does stucco work? Mavir and Esroah through Tztaka. How in the world does that work? <clears throat> so, it's also not for now. <laughs> I like to just give you little appetizers. Got to keep, got to keep everybody coming back. It's not just. I'll tell you how it works. It works the exact same way as Tshuva and Tfila. Tshuva is transformation. Tefillah is self-transformation. What we do with our money, our attitude towards our resources, whether we're selfish and narcissistic and self-centered with our money, or we use it to support and to create and to change, says everything about us and also is a process of self-transformation. The Gemara refers to money with the word Domim. Damim is the Aramaic or the Talmudic word for money. The root of Damim is Dam, is blood. Money is our blood. Money is our blood because we earn it through sweat and tears. We work. We sacrifice. We give up. We toil to earn it. And so when we give it away, we're giving away a piece of ourselves, which makes it all the more special. All the more amazing. The Rambam asks, why is it called staka? The root of the word staka is tzedek. Tzedek translates to justice. What is just about my... Te- this is in Yana Dioma, as they're trying to pass legislation about taxes. What is just about taking my hard-earned money that I toiled for, that I sacrificed for, and making me give it to someone else? It's kindness. Should be called Rachamim, says the Rambam. Should be called Chesed. Tzedek? Tztaka? What's righteous? What's just? It's kind. It's nice. But it's voluntary. 
It's going above and beyond that I worked hard. It's my dumim to share it with someone else. Where's the tzedek and staka? It's chesed. Says the Rambam, it's completely tzedek. You know why? Because every dollar you earned came at the expense of your dumim. You worked hard for it. But you had a partner for every dollar you earned. And you are the junior partner among the partnership. The senior partner is the one without which you could not have earned that dollar. Can you be proud of your hard work? Absolutely. Should you take pride in what you accomplished? 100% enjoy it. But never forget you had a senior partner. And the senior partner without his input, you wouldn't have earned that dollar. And here's the amazing thing. You know how the split goes? between you and the senior partner? The senior partner is the one without which you wouldn't have earned the dollar. You'd think he'd say minimum 50-50, more likely 60-40, 70-30, 90-10. Yeah, you work tirelessly, but guess what? I'm the senior partner. You know, when there's construction going on, the people breaking their back are earning the minimum wage, and the contractor drives up in the luxury car, stops and has a coffee from Starbucks, plays golf every afternoon, only meets with the people in the morning. The guys in the field are breaking their back, laying brick. Who makes more money? The one laying the brick? Giving their dumb and breaking their back? Or the senior partner? Because you say, you, you know, you're very uh, skilled. You can build a home. You can put on an extension. But the contractor says, without me, you wouldn't have a job. I'm the one, I'm the rainmaker. I'm the one who makes it happen. I bring in the customers, I make it happen. The Ribbonu Shalom is the rainmaker. He's the senior partner. And yet, he says, you know what? You keep 90% of the profit, I just want 10%. Senior partner says, I just, and you know what, I'll tell you what, I don't even want the 10%. I have children that need, just write the check right to them. Don't give it to me. So it's called Meiser, it's called Stucker. Says the Rambam, it is completely just when you recognize that 90% of what you earned you should have had to give away. It is unbelievably generous of the senior partner that he lets us keep 90% and giving away that other 10% is not an act of chesed. It's not an act of rachamim. It's an act of tzedek. It is just because we are stewards on God's money. It's His money that He's asked us to direct on His behalf to where it belongs to worthy causes. So if we don't, if we're stingy, self-centered, and we're unwilling to share, to give, to donate, to support, then we have shown that our attitude towards money says everything about us. But when we give tzedakah, tatzel mimavas, chumetchem truma, tzedakah is part of the process of tshuva, because if I want to show Hashem, you know what? I made a mistake, I was living my life as if you weren't in it. And how do I repair that? By proving that I believe you're the senior partner. By proving that my amuna and bitachon is that I wouldn't have what I have without you. So I'm ready to give away not only 10%, I'll give up to 20% at Staka. Because I know that you'll replenish and replace it because you're the senior partner. Staka is an act of amuna. When you're stingy and you don't give, because you're afraid you won't have enough for you. When you believe that Hashem gives you what you need and what you deserve and you'll always have what you need and deserve, then you give freely. Because after all, it's all up to Hashem. So stuck is an exercise in emuna. 
And therefore, it's part of the tshuva process. Says Rabbi Salavechik, even before the Pasuk in Mishle, giving is part of the tshuva process. And feel free to make your way to the shul office right after the class. <laughs> Construction of the tabernacle. We go through all the kalim of the Mishkan, including the kior. Tells us about the kior. He made the washstand of copper, the bases of copper. The base was made out of the mirrors of the women who had met at the entrance of the Oal Moed. We know the kior is the vessel through which the Kohanim washed their hands, their feet, before the Avoda. It was made of copper, not the ordinary copper that had been donated by the general public, but this was very special copper. Rashi tells us it was the shiny, polished copper from the mirrors that the women had used in Mitzrayim to beautify themselves and to draw the attraction, the attention of their husbands in order to procreate and create Jewish continuity. Page 526, towards the end of Ayakel. Rashi Pasuches. Benos Yisrael ha'yubiyadon maros shiroz bahem kishen mitzkashtos. They had mirrors they would beautify themselves with. Vaf oson lo'akvim milahavi l'nedavas ha'mishkan. They took those mirrors, were responsible for the continuity of the Jewish people. The men, hopeless and helpless. They had given up any faith that things could get better. And they said, why would we bring children into this miserable world? And the women said, what are you talking about? Right now it's miserable. Right now it's terrible. But you've got to believe. There's a Ribbonu Shalom and it's going to get better. And how could they ensure the continuity of the people? Through the use of these mirrors, they beautified themselves and they attracted the attention of their husbands. And Rashi goes on to quote Chazal to tell us this entire story. So when it came time to donate it, what do you think? How would Moshe react to the donation of the mirrors? I would think that Moshe would be thrilled. Wow! These mirrors which were a vehicle of such good these mirrors which saved our people, I want to put them in a museum. Forever I want to be able to look back and point and say, thank God for the Noshim Tzidkonios, the righteous women. But instead, Rashi quotes the measures that tells us, Moshe was repulsed by these donations. He said, these are vehicles of pure vanity. These mirrors were used to incite the Yetzirah. Kodesh Baruch Hu turns to him and says, Amalei HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Kabel, take the mirrors. Ki elu chaviven alay min hakol sh'ayideyem ha'amidu anashem l'tzvahos rabos b'mitzrayim. These are more precious to me than any other donation, than any other gift. Not only should you not be repulsed, Moshe, cherish these donations. What is this debate going on between Hashem and Moshe? So the Rav here in the Rav Chomish, says a magnificent understanding. Moshe, the Rav explains, Hashem was telling him, Moshe did not understand how the mirrors the women employed while they ornamented themselves for their husbands, gaining pleasure from their own beauty, could be properly incorporated in the kior, adjacent to the Mizbeach, where a Jew brings his sacrifice of atonement on which he recites confession with a broken heart. Given that the Mizbeach and kior seem to represent two mutually exclusive motifs, the physical proximity of the two items seems strange. How can the beauty of the mirror harmonize with the sensation of self-criticism with which the road to the altar is bound? 
Moshe thought the Kior is the Yitzhahara. You're going to put that next to the Mizbeach, the holy vessel through which we achieve atonement? They don't belong next to each other. So how does Hashem answer? Hashem turns to Moshe and says, no, accept it. Why? Personal growth and repairing relationships and improving ourselves is predicated on the capacity for self-awareness. The power within man to be able to accuse ourselves, to be able to think of ourselves as unworthy or inferior, to recognize our failures, our shortcomings and mistakes, mistakes, that we are responsible for the damage we've caused in our relationship with others. The kior belongs next to the Mizbeach, says the Rav, because the prerequisite for atonement is the act of looking in the mirror, confronting an honest view of ourselves, taking responsibility for what we see and the impact that it has. So says the Rav, what Hashem was answering Moshe is, not only is it not a contradiction to have them next to each other, it's the appropriate place. Before you can step up to the Mizbeach and offer your sacrifice of atonement, you have to show your ability to look in the mirror. For it to not be superficial and fake, perfunctory, but to be real and authentic, for change to be real, for personal growth to be real, for relationships to be real, you have to be willing to look in the mirror, you have to confront who you are. A good friend of mine told me an amazing story about his father. In the early 1970s, Maryland was one of the first states that came out with the concept of vanity license plates that you could pay to get written exactly what you want. You could choose up to six letters, you could personalize the plate. So my friend's father had a great idea. He was working as the director of NCSY in the area at the time, and he got a license plate with the word Torah. T-O-R-A-H, that was the license plate. Torah. Didn't say Torah 1, Torah 613, he he got the first one, Torah. And driving around with that license plate, Every so often, someone would pull up beside him and honk and wave and show their Jewish identity, what we call bagel him. (coughs) Of course, sometimes others would pull up and honk and give the one-finger salute or uh, demonstrate a lack of support for that Torah. So one Arab Shabbos in the winter, my friend's dad had an order waiting for him at a restaurant. And the hour was late and there was no place to park circled around the block, he looked, he was desperate, he was getting close to Shabbos. So he just doubled park, he put the hazard lights on, he ran in to get his order, he wasn't ready, it took a few more minutes than he thought. And when he got back to his car, he found two notes on his windshield, which essentially both said the same thing. For a Torah Jew, double parking and blocking traffic is not a mitzvah. <laughs> and the message was received. Okay, one week later he's driving, and he's stuck behind this guy who's moving in slow motion. The guy's going so slow, and we all know it's terrible. He's stuck behind such a person. So my friend's father decides he's going to speed up. He zooms around the guy. But also, as often happens, you get stuck at a red light, and the person that you went flying past because they were going too slow pulls up right beside you. And this person did. And he rolled down the window, and he said to my friend's father, you know, a person driving around Torah should have a little more patience. So that night, my friend's mother walks outside the house and she finds her husband is removing the license plate from the car. (laughs) She says, what are you doing? He said, I'm switching the license plate. Why are you switching the license plate? I'm going to get the old license plate with the random numbers and letters. I'm getting rid of this. 
She said, why? But you love these license plates. You were the first to sign up. So he said, about the recent events, the double parking story, and then the person who pulled up at the red light story. And he said, I, it's just not worth it. I'm changing the plates. So my friend's mother looked at his father and said, so what you're saying is, you'd rather change your license plate than change yourself. You'd rather change your license plate than change your behavior. I would tell you who it is. I don't have permission to say his name. It's a true story. I wasn't there. My friend tells me it's an absolutely true story. But that's what the Rav is saying. The Kior goes next to the Mizbeach. You got to look in the mirror. It's easy to change the license plate. It's easy to blame others. It's easy to go through the motions of changing the external license plate. But to look in the mirror and change ourselves and our behavior, so the Kior is next to the Mizbeach, you got to look inside. Okay. Did he leave the light? It's a good question. I'm, ass- I'm, I'm assuming he left the license plate on. I'm assuming he did. Let's go back to the beginning of the Parsha, Vayakel. Page 516. Parsha's Vayakel begins the gathering of all the Jewish people to teach them about Shabbos. Vayakel Moshe is called Das Bnei Alayem. Moshe gathers everyone and he says, These are the things that God commanded. Read that now, knowing the Beis HaLevi and the Meshach Chochmah. The Vayaka Pakudi are coming to remind us we can't do it our way. Even when we have the best intentions, it has to be that what? Hashem We have to follow the way Hashem told us. And what did he tell us? Six days do work. Six days work. On the seventh day we rest. A day of complete rest for Hashem. Whoever does not work on it, whoever does work on it, it's a capital crime. Do not burn a fire in all of your dwelling places. On Shabbos. On Shabbos. First of all, notice work in the Jewish faith is not a concession. The fact that we have to work is not a concession. Really, we prefer we won the lottery. Really, I wish other people would support me. But if I have no choice and I have to work, I have to work. In the Jewish faith, work is a value. It's a value. It's only meaningful to rest in the seventh day when the six days you work. Mishnah Pirkei Avos. Torah requires She'eni Mamallah. You need work. Derech Eretz. Derech Eretz is understood to mean work. Work is a value. Even if you won the lottery. Even if you have other people who would generously agree to support you. That doesn't, that doesn't exempt you from work. Work, I don't mean being that bricklayer necessarily in construction. Work means product, productivity. Being an influence in the world. Making a difference. Kodesh Baruch Hu said, Go fill the world, the Kivshua, and conquer the world. We conquer the world through the the six days we work. So the first thing to understand Shabbos is that Shabbos, the rest is not seven days a week. What makes Shabbos Shabbos is when is when six days you do work. 
Work for the Jewish people, Jewish values, is not a concession. Work is a, is a value. That's number one. Why are we seeing Shabbos with the Mishkan yet again? So, back to the Rabbi Salavetchi Chomash. Eila Advarim Asher Tziva Hashem Lasosam. You saw it began, Eila Advarim. The verse uses the plural to introduce the subsequent topics that are to be discussed. Shabbos and the collection of donations for the Mishkan. One must conclude that the plural, Eilah Advarim, refers to both Shabbos and the Mishkan. Because three verses later, the Torah introduces the discussion of the Mishkan using the singular Zehadavar. So Eilah Advarim is a general introduction to both Shabbos and the Mishkan. There are four places where the Torah links the Shabbos with the Mishkan. What is the nature of these intertwined concepts? Asks the Rav. The answer, he says, is fundamental. Both Shabbos and the tabernacle constitute sanctuaries. One is a sanctuary in time, while the other is a sanctuary in space. God wants Jews to establish a residence for Him, both in space and in time. The Jew is prepared properly for Shabbos and is about to light his candles, finds himself in the same position as the Jew of 2,000 years ago preparing to enter the sanctuary. Shabbos is for time what the sanctuary was for space. When you walk into the Mishkan, you are in a new place, a place of holiness. And when you walk into Shabbos, you are in a new time, a new dimension, a new place as well. On the one hand, infinity separates the human being from God. On the other hand, God is imminent and close to His people. Through symptom self-contraction, God squeezed infinity into finitude and chose to dwell among human beings first in the Mishkan and later the Beis HaMikdash. Shabbos embodies a similar idea. On festival night, God pays us a visit. L'chadodi represents the Shekhinah knocking on the door. The festivals on Shabbos are different. On Shabbos, God visits the Jewish people. On Yantif, when we make a pilgrimage to the Beis HaMikdash, we visit God. The Shekhinah of the Mikdash was of transcendental nature. The end of Parshish Pekudei, a cloud of glory hovered over it by day and a pillar of fire by night. The Shekhinah was both a physical light and a spiritual experience. It was outside of nature and defied the laws of causality. The Mishkan was nothing less than an ongoing miracle that transcended the natural order. Shabbos also demonstrates God's presence, but on a natural level. Just as God reveals Himself through His transcending the casual order via supernatural miracles, God also reveals Himself in the order of nature. One can experience God through the blue sky and the flowering bush, Shabbos represents the natural order. The idea of the Mishkan as a sanctuary in space and Shabbos, a sanctuary in time, is the reason the Torah in four different places linked the sanctity of the Shabbos with that of the Mishkan. If you look elsewhere in the uh, Siddur of Rabbi Salavechik, Koran put out a Siddur of the Rav. He expands on this idea. I'm surprised they didn't incorporate it into the Chumash. And he says, the Gemara in Shabbos of Chofhei recounts that in Erev Shabbos, among the preparations, the Tanner of Yehuda ben Eloi would wash his face and his hands and his feet, and then he would wrap himself in a talus in order to resemble a malach, an angel. And the Rambam in Hilchos Shabbos, Perak Lamed, Halacha Beis, the Rambam quotes this Gemara. Listen to the Rambam. Ezehu Kavod, what's considered honoring Shabbos? Zesh Amru Chacham, Misha Mitzvah Adam Lirchot, Panav Yad Varagla Bacham in Be'er Shabbos, there's an obligation to wash on Erev Shabbos in preparation to honor the Shabbos. 
Umisatif Bitsitsis, the Yoshev Bekobit Rosh, Mechalak Palas Pene Shabbos, Kmushal Yotze the Cross on Melach. Rachamim Marishonim, I Makabsen Tamidei and Be'er of Shabbos, Umisatvin Vaumrim, Bo Venetze Likra Shabbos on Melach. Says the Rambam, one must wash your face and hands and feet. You wrap yourself in a talus and wait to greet Shabbos the way one would wait to greet a king. And the early Chachamim would surround themselves with their students and then wrap themselves in a talus and say, let's go out and greet the Shabbos king. First of all, the Rambam was alluding to the Gemara. In the time of the Rambam, in the time of the Gemara, what did Friday night look like? Yudav and Mincha. And what did Yudav and afterwards? It's not a trick question. <laughs> Yudav and Marif. There was no Kabbalah Shabbos. If the Rambam came back to life and came to Arshua Friday night, he'd say, what in the world are you doing? Why aren't you going from Mincha to Marif? Yes, the Gemara and the Rambam records there was a tradition. You wrap yourself in a talus and you greet the Shabbos queen. Although you'll note that he talks about as if greeting a king. He doesn't reference the queen. Is Shabbos a queen? Is Shabbos a king? Not for now. But, <laughs> but, the Rambam didn't have Kabbalah Shabbos. Who invented Kabbalah Shabbos? The Ari and his contemporaries, the mystics of Tzfat, of the 16th century, gave us Kabbalah Shabbos. Until then, Friday night looked very different. You, you, we don't find a sitter today. The Rambam didn't say it. And by the way, followers of the Rambam today, those who consider themselves followers of the Rambam, I, I would imagine Temanim don't have Kabbalah Shabbos. Those who follow the Rambam don't have it. But nevertheless, the Rambam does still depict this image of wrapping a talus. It's about to be nighttime. Isn't a talus what you wear during the day? Why is the Rambam describing you wrap yourself in a talus? And it's very interesting, because if you go to Hilchos Tefillah, which I don't have, uh, I do have. If you go to Hilchos Tefillah, Perek Yemal Halacha Yemal, listen to Hilchos Tefillah. Says the Rambam, Hilchos Tefillah, Perek Yemo, Halacha Gemo. That you have to prepare yourself for davening Shacharis. And it's not here, Perek Yemo, Halacha Gemo. Sorry. Anyway, the Rambam uses a very similar language. That Mis'atif Patalas, that you prepare yourself in a talus. And you greet Hashem. So why is the Rambam using this parallel language? Shabbos and davening. So said the Rav, just as one prepares for Shabbos by wrapping himself in a talus, so too tefillah requires special clothing. Just as one would solemnly sit and await Shabbos, so too you put oneself in a serious frame of mind in preparation for tefillah. All the preparation that one is expected to perform in honor of Shabbos are in truth borrowed from the requirements of tefillah since they're both manifestations of standing before the king. Kabbalah Shabbos is like going out to greet the king. Tefillah is considered standing before the king. In this respect, they're equal and therefore require proper preparations. It's lamentable, said the Rav, that in contemporary times, even in those neighborhoods made up of predominantly religious Jews, one can no longer talk of the sanctity of Shabbos. There are Jews in America who observe Shabbos, but it's not for Shabbos that my heart aches. It is for the forgotten Erev Shabbos the eve of Shabbos. There are Shabbos-observant Jews in America, but there are no Arab Shabbos Jews who go out to greet Shabbos with beating hearts and pulsating souls. There are many who observe the precepts with their hands and their feet and their mouths, 
But there are few indeed who truly know the meaning of the service of the heart. So this connection, the idea that the Mishkan and Shabbos go together, because one is a sanctuary in time and the other is a sanctuary in space. And the common denominator of both is they are a rendezvous point to meet with Hashem. And that's why the Rambam describes both similarly wrapping in a talus. And it's why the Torah in no less than four places correlates Shabbos and the Mishkan together. Why four times? If we've had it already before, why do we have it again now? So the Nitziv says, because previously we had Shabbos in terms of its laws. 39 malachos, here's what you can do, here's what you can't do. It was given to the Zikain and it was given to the elders. But says the Nitziv, here it's given where? Vayakel as kol All Jews, whatever their background, whatever their age, whatever their gender, whatever their level, all Jews are gathered and given Shabbos. And says the Nitziv, you'll notice it says, Yiyelachem Kodesh. Vayom Yiyelachem Kodesh. On the seventh day, it should be for you, Kodesh. The Nitziv says this adds an entire new dimension to Shabbos. In other words, previously we said, Ki Kodesh Lachem. Shabbos is a holy day for you. But now it says, Yelachem Kodesh. So the Nitziv writes, Vayom Ashvi, Yinahagubo Kedusha, Kedusha, Kol Echad Lafi Erko. That there's two components to Shabbos. On the one hand, there's the 39 Malachas. The do's and the don'ts, the rules, the regulations. That's one aspect of Shabbos. That was given to the elders who are responsible for transmitting and teaching the laws. But says the Nitziv, it's repeated again here. Why? Kodesh Yiyeh. Yelachem Kodesh. Shabbat Shabbat Lashem. Yelachem Kodesh. You have to bring an attitude and a perspective to Shabbos that it should be holy for us. That we don't talk about the same things that we talk about during the week. That we are not occupied with the same interests and the same distractions and the same stress and the same anxiety. There's the physical of Shabbos, the 39 malachas that regulate what we do, but then there's the kiyom shabalev, the internal attitude about Shabbos, about yelachem kodesh. And that says the Nitziv is not objective, it's subjective. It's individualized. Everyone lefi erko, each person according to what works for them. One more thing. Lo sevaru esh, the last pasuk of this opening part. Lo sevaru esh b'chom Moshe You cannot have a fire lit. The, um, the Karaites, the Tzdukim, understood this pasuk literally. You cannot have a fire lit. They would sit in the cold and the dark <coughs> every Shabbos <coughs> because the pasuk says, Lo sevaru esh, you can't have a fire lit in all of your dwelling places. So they would not even benefit from a pre-existing fire that had been lit before Shabbos. We, Baruch Hashem, have the Torah Shabbat Peh. And our rabbis say, Lo Sivaru means you cannot initiate a new fire. But if you have a fire lit from before Shabbos, of course you can benefit from it. Which is why we're able to eat what food? Chalant. This, my friends, is the origin of Cholent. <laughs> You're laughing. The Balhamor, Rav Zrach Halevi, who lived in Spain in the mid-1100s, he writes that it's a takonos chachamim to enjoy hot food on Shabbos. And he says, whoever doesn't eat hot food on Shabbos day, we have to suspect that they're a min, 
that they're an apicurus. You have to suspect them of being a heretic. Because why wouldn't you eat hot food Shabbos day? Because you don't believe you're allowed to benefit from a pre-existing fire. So the test, the affirmation that we believe in the Torah Shabbat Peh, the affirmation that we believe in the oral Torah is to eat hot food. It's mitakonos chachamim, that we have a modern practice, a takonos chachamim, to eat hot food. The Orzarua, who lived less than a century later, the Orzarua in the mid-1200s, already mentions Cholent by name. Calls it Cholent. And it, lest you think this is just a nice idea, the Ramah quotes it and calls it a mitzvah. Says the Ramah, there is a mitzvah to eat Cholent. It's my favorite mitzvah. <laughs> Says there's a mitzvah to eat hot food on Shabbos. And the Mishnabura calls it a minag Yisrael. There's a minag Yisrael every Shabbos. If you don't want to have chalent, have a cup of hot tea, drink some hot water, eat something hot every Shabbos to prove that we are not Karaites. So, Los Moshe the affirmation, the evidence that we believe and subscribe and accept the oral Torah is the mitzvah, the Ramah calls the mitzvah of chalent. The Shlach Kadosh, with this we end, the Shlach Kadosh says, the Shlah understands that homiletically. Do not, don't kindle a fire in any of your dwelling places on Shabbos. Says the Shlah, you know what it means? You know what Aish, what fire is a reference to? Homiletically he says this? Anger. Means that a person needs to be especially careful not to get angry on Erev Shabbos or Shabbos. Why do you have to be especially careful not to get angry on Erev Shabbos or Shabbos? Because Erev Shabbos never, ever goes the way you want Erev Shabbos to go. <laughs> Kids are not getting in the shower. No one helped you set the table. Husband's not yet home from work. The food isn't set up the way it's supposed to. Nobody set up the, 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 the licht. It's the most inviting moment of the week for anger to burn, for it to flare. So says the Shlach Kodesh Lo Sevaru Eish B'chol Mosh Vaseichem. One needs to be especially vigilant on Erev Shabbos and Shabbos B'chol Mosh Vaseichem in all of your dwelling places that there can't be anger. Rav Chaim Palaji in his Kafachayim writes, Ani Agever Rasa Enai She B'chol Bayis Shayabom Achlokus Be'erev Shabbos or Balel Shabbos Hayabodikum Menusa Ki Ra Neged Pinayim V'lo Yotzin Nikiim Oso Shavua Be'ezem Mikra Ra Rachman L'Tzlan. Says the Kafachayim, I can testify, I saw with my own eyes that any home that had anger on Erev Shabbos or on Shabbos, something bad happened that week. If you want to have a good week, get rid of the anger. But the homes that were filled with anger, it's so toxic and negative. He said, this is him. Badukul Menusa, it's tried and true, it's tested. Losavaru Eish doesn't just mean literally a fire, but it means the fire of anger and rage. I encourage you to stay here by Moscow. It's phenomenal class and Sefer Malachim continues right now.